Signal transduction is a term that originated in the physical sciences, but over the past 25 years, it has become a key concept in cell and molecular biology. How can understanding this concept help us understand how psychotropics and psychotherapy work? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Viamontes. Dr. Viamontes is Regional Medical Director of United Behavioral Health in St. Louis and Assistant Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Missouri in Columbia. He is active in the implementation of neural network predictive models for use in targeted disease management and is currently preparing a book to be published later this year entitled An Atlas of Neurobiology, How the Brain Creates the Self. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Viamantes. Thank you very much, Dr. Lund. It's a real pleasure to do this program with you because I think this is a very exciting topic that all physicians should really be well informed about. And you have the perfect background to discuss this topic. You're a board-certified psychiatrist, an addiction psychiatrist, a geriatric psychiatrist, and an immunobiologist. How did you get interested in signal transduction? As you know, signal transduction is a basic process that really is one of the keys by which multicellular organisms regulate themselves and is also essential for the introduction of signals from the external environment into the internal milieu. So anything that you can sense and then react to requires signal transduction. And what is the first step? The first step in signal transduction is reception of a signal from the environment. And so basically, for humans, it's generally the reception of some kind of a sensory signal. And in humans, now, what is the most developed sensory modality that we have? As we all know, vision, of course, is the most developed of the sensory modalities in humans. And visible light is really just a special name that we give to electromagnetic energy in the range of 400 to 700 nanometers. And life on Earth is possible only because the sun bombards us constantly with electromagnetic radiation. And that's how we can actually create order from inorganic chemicals. And as you know, the retina is the light-detecting region in the back wall of the eye. And this actually has photosensitive cells called rods and cones, and they're in a ratio of about 20 to 1. The rods are very sensitive to low levels of light, And even though they can't represent colors, they can actually detect as few as 15 photons of light. The cones are not as sensitive as the rods, but the visual patterns that they can represent are actually colored and they appear sharper because the fovea, which is the most sensitive area of the retina, contains the highest density of photoreceptors, and the only cell types in the fovea are cones. And so, therefore, things look very, very sharp in that area. Do other sensory modalities have different transduction pathways? Yes, they do. Maybe I can tell you a little bit first about the actual cellular mechanisms by which light energy is converted into neural impulses, and then I can tell you how that differs in other sensory modalities. Okay. Now, what is interesting is that just like neurons, rods and cones in the eye have a resting membrane potential. That means that their insides are electrically charged with respect to the fluids that bathe them. And so the resting membrane potential of rods and cones is around minus 30 millivolts. 
And, you know, this compares to the average polarity of a neuron, which is about minus 70 millivolts. So they're not quite as polarized as a neuron, but they're still significantly polarized. What is interesting is that unlike many other cells, like neurons, which only fire in response to a signal, the rods and cones actually fire without any incoming signal, and they create what's called a dark current. And so in the dark, rods and cones are continuously firing, and they do this because they have a constant influx of sodium and calcium through special ion channels that are embedded in their membranes. And the other thing that happens is potassium actually leaves the rods and cones continuously, and so there are ion flows that maintain this special ion current in the dark. And so what happens is that when you see light, it activates photosensitive pigments in the rods and cones, and this is called rhodopsin. And the rhodopsin actually interacts with a protein called transducin, and it makes the ion currents disappear. The way that it does this is that the dark current is dependent on the concentrations of cyclic GMP, which is guanyl monophosphate. And the concentration of cyclic GMP is actually modulated by a visual protein called transducin. And when light hits a rod or a cone and activates the rhodopsin, transducin is actually activated and causes cyclic GMP to break down. When cyclic GMP breaks down, the dark current is interrupted, and that's when you can see actual visual information. What an elegant system. The other senses, as you asked before, have similar transduction mechanisms. Some of the more simple ones are like the taste mechanisms, the acidity that you can taste, for example, in lemonade, is actually due to the hydrogen ions in the acid in the lemonade. They activate some of the ion channels in the tongue directly. So some of those things are actually quite simple. The transduction of skin signals are actually mechanoreceptors that just by being pushed open up ion channels that then cause the ion flows. So some of those other sensory modalities are very similar to vision, although they in many ways are a lot simpler. Now, if you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Viamantes. We are discussing signal transduction. Dr. Viamantes, what happens next after the sensory signals have been converted? Well, after the sensory signals have been converted to neural signals, they actually undergo a variety of transformations. And, of course, there are really three important pieces of receiving and reacting to a signal. The first thing is, of course, receiving the signal. The second thing is interpreting the signal. What does the signal mean? And the third thing is actually reacting to the signal. We talked a little bit about receiving the signal. There are receptors in our sense organs that can actually receive signals and convert them to neural impulses. The next thing that maybe we should talk a little bit about, which I think would be of great interest to your listeners, is how the brain actually interprets the meaning of signals that have been received. And how does that happen? The visual signals, for example, are very, very well processed in the brain. And, you know, the brain has tremendous numbers of structures devoted to visual processing. The primary visual cortex, which is where the information comes to first, is in the occipital lobe, and this is an area called D1. So this is right in the back of the head. And what's interesting is that this particular area contains a very, very faithful representation of the information on the retina, almost like a one-to-one mapping. But as you then begin to process visual data farther forward into the brain, you begin to break down the visual information into categories like shape, 
color and movement. What is interesting is that you have specific nodes within the brain that actually process specific parts of the visual experience. So, for example, you could have damage to a particular area in your brain that would make you unable to recognize movement. So that's actually a very disabling and very rare illness, but it actually happens. So some of the categories that we think are really objective categories like shape, color, and movement actually depend on the presence of specific nodes in the brain that can actually encode those features. If you lose those features, then roundness would have no meaning for you or movement or color. So this would be trauma from something like a stroke? A stroke can cause it or head trauma can cause this. And so there are people actually who, for example, you have damage to the movement areas. You cannot pour liquids and you cannot cross the street because you really can't tell that things are moving at all. And, and, you know, what's interesting is if you lose the movement area in your brain, you have no idea of what movement even is because there's no reference to previous movement. You can't understand it, in other words. Any other examples that we might see clinically? Some of the more common things are problems with seeing colors, people who are colorblind, and, you know, they have a variety of deficits in that perceptive system. What is interesting is that once you recognize specific light patterns, then, you know, the information is then transmitted to specific parts of the brain. The main part of the brain that recognizes whether something is likely to be rewarding or dangerous are the areas of the brain that we call the amygdala and the orbitofrontal cortex. The amygdala and orbitofrontal cortex are actually wired together. And when you are born, they contain a lot of information about things that are likely to be good or likely to be bad. For example, our liking of things that are sweet is pre-programmed in the brain. And so tasting a sweet substance would activate some of the taste areas in the orbitofrontal cortex and also the amygdala, and then you would enjoy that and want more of it. On the other hand, things that are bitter, bitterness is actually a very important sense because many of the natural poisons are bitter. And so we can really, really detect very, very low levels of bitterness, and we're born not liking that. Now, what is interesting is that as we get older, we begin to like some bitter things like coffee. Most kids who try coffee don't like it because it's too bitter. But as you begin to enjoy the effects of caffeine, then you associate the taste with that effect, and then you might like bitter substances. Wow. So we have visual examples, taste examples, any in terms of smell or hearing? One interesting thing is, you know, the classic Pavlovian conditioning of dogs is that you can actually use a natural reinforcer like food to make a dog salivate at hearing an auditory cue. So, you know, you can actually ring a bell every time you feed a dog, and eventually, just by ringing the bell, the dog will immediately salivate. The other things that are very evident is, say, one day you become ill after eating a particular food, and very much later, you may have problems if you smell that particular food or if you taste it because you remember getting sick from it. And so these things then become learned patterns that your brain is able to recognize. So, you know, the pattern recognition is actually one of the most important pieces of signal transduction because it then determines what we're going to do as a result of the signal. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. We've been speaking with Dr. George Viamantes about signal transduction. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. 
Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 